Welcome to the summary of my interview with David DiGeralamo, the mayor of Union Township in New Jersey. Union Township mayoral role is what is considered a weak mayoral role in that he runs for the committee and once he was elected to the township committee, that committee in turn actually elects the mayor. He has very few privileges outside of the other committee members and he sees his role as really being the one who sets the vision and mission for the rest of the committee members and the town, like the figurehead, as though he's running a business project. He sees his job as to figure out what the town needs, what the problems or opportunities are, and use the committee effectively, along with members of other government offices and their network to create change on behalf of the township. Please listen to the rest of the interview to find out more. All right, welcome to 60 Second Democracy. I'm here with guest David DiGeralamo and excited to talk about uh, being a mayor in a small or medium-sized town. Pretty exciting. <laughs> so uh, I'd love to start off by just having you tell us, you know, your name, title, size of your town, where it is. Okay, so uh, first of all, thanks for doing this. This is kind of fun. It's not something I do every day. Uh, my name is David DiGeralamo. I am 52 years old. I'm from Union Township currently which is in Hunterdon County. There's multiple Union Townships in New Jersey, but this is the best one of the three or four. Uh, and our population is about 6,000 or so, kind of a unique town in that uh, we have a woman's prison right on the corner of the, the township, and that represents a portion of our population, though they're not permanent residents, at least they hope that they're not permanent residents of the, the women's prison. And we also have a, uh, uh, a nursing home. Uh, and then we have about 1,350 houses uh, in town and then about 500 or so uh, condos, um, uh, homes in the Union Gap and Union Hill area. So it's about 1,800 houses, 5,500 to 6,000 folks. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. And starting all this off, Whatever motivated you to become the mayor of a small town? Yeah, so uh, it was one of my 18 midlife crises. I turned 50. I just graduated from a, a third graduate school. Uh, I love being a professional student. I've always, I've always enjoyed learning and, and upping the bar and seeing if I could accomplish certain things. When I turned 50, uh, I... I thought to myself, well, I didn't like anything that I saw on television, both on the Republican side and the Democrat side, on, on national politics. I just felt that the people who were comprising the ones who, uh, for whom we were voting uh, were not good choices at all, and they weren't the archetypes that I envisioned being our future leaders of the country that I love. And so that discouraged me, and, and it made me say, well, I'm tired of bitching about it. Let me see if I could do something myself. Uh, I've always been a, a student of leadership, which suggests that I was not very good in the beginning, and I'm less bad than I, than I was, uh, but it's always been something that I've pursued. It's something that I've considered uh, a challenge, and uh, I felt at the age of 50 that, that I had acquired enough skills and learned from enough mistakes to, to start doing some good things, and so that's why I started. I knew that I didn't have any cachet to, to go for anything higher. And frankly, it just seemed pretty intuitive to start as locally as I could. And, and that's what I did. I was encouraged by a lot of folks who I knew uh, to run. 
and I did it the old-fashioned way, which is to talk to people. Uh, we were emerging from COVID. It was uh, a time where everybody, I think, was just so thoroughly entranced by human interaction because it had been so long. So having someone come to their door was, I think, a very intriguing and, and engaging concept for them. It ingratiated myself, perhaps, to the populace who had never had anybody come to their door. And, and so, uh, and when I won in the primary in 2020, it was a, a representation of, of change. And uh, it came at a very opportune time in that COVID was really just bogging people down and, and they wanted to see some vibrancy. They wanted to see some energy. And I think I represented that to them. So, so I ran because I was uh, disenchanted by what I saw on TV. It was at a great time for me in my life to allow my extroversion wings to fly and, and spread. And uh, it worked. And so that's why I did it. And I've loved every single day of it. Amazing story. I love it. Thank you. Well, perhaps a two-part question. Uh-oh. One, did you know what a mayor did before you took the job? No, I don't think so, if I'm being honest. I knew it was local, uh, local government, and I have viewed this job from the very beginning the same way as I do today, which is I think this is I think this is where a lot of politicians or a lot of people who go run for public office and ultimately are lucky to ha- hold those offices their first and ultimate perhaps biggest mistake is that they view themselves as politicians when in fact that they should always every second of the day view themselves as a public servant if they are if they are meant to take on a job of public service then that's exactly what they should do and so as such if they're if they're guided by that principle that they are public servants, then there isn't any call, any email, any any conversation that should be dismissed or viewed as, as picayune. It should be viewed with merit because it is a resident who's coming to you and saying, I have a problem. And, and so I didn't quite know what the roles were for being the mayor or being on the committee, but what I knew was it was going to be very much akin to how I view my role as a clinician in medicine and dentistry, which is how do you diagnose a problem? Let's understand what the problem is first. What brings them in? What is my diagnosis? What is the treatment plan for that problem? And how do I communicate it in a way that's respectful and dignified and and affords them peace of mind? Even in my disagreement, if that's the case, they might not get what they're wanting from me, but at least I'll explain my rationale behind why I'm not going to do it for them. And I think that most humans respect that. That makes a lot of sense. So now that you've been in the role, you know, if you were explaining this to somebody who also has no background, what would you describe as the role mm-hmm. of a mayor of a town of, of this size? So y- you might be viewing this as a simple question. It's actually one of the most complicated ones. And I, the, I'll give you the gestalt answer, which I think is the right answer. So I, I had the opportunity to uh, host a fundraiser for a, a public officer way higher than me in the ranks, and, and I had to com- concoct a speech for him uh, to introduce him to the, the masses. And for some reason, I was thinking about, like, what are the characteristics of a good public servant? And, and what I got to, and normally I like thinking about things in threes, but I, I really, it's four. Uh, there are four things that, in my view, now that I've done this for about 600 days 
I'm pretty clear these are the qualities and characteristics of, of what a good mayor, a good committee person should have. First, it, number one, they should be honest. They should speak their words properly, accurately. And if you live by that principle, then it's a very easy life. You don't have to fake. You don't have to um, be duplicitous. Just be honest in your words, honest in your actions. Uh, be unbiased. Uh, that, I think, is a, a major flaw for many people in public office, either for personal reasons or religious reasons or, or financial reasons. They have some sort of impetus to go a certain way, even though that bucks what actually should be done. And I think that, in some respects, being an arbiter, an unbiased, dispassionate arbiter is exactly what you need to be first and foremost, is honest. The second is responsive. So you could be honest as heck, right? But if you're not responding to people, then nobody knows that you're doing anything. And so I think for many people, including myself, not just in politics, but in business or medicine or what have you, if someone's not responding to me, I'm infuriated by that. They could be highly competent, but if they don't respond to me, I'm pissed. So the second piece is they need to know how and when to respond to their populace. The third is, uh, and this is more nuanced, I guess, is rapport. So I think it's important for a really successful public servant to understand the rules of engagement and to understand the chess game that is government. And that includes befriending folks who are within your town and also outside of your town, above the town. Uh, that could be county, that could be state, could be national and folks who could help you get your job done. And that means to engage people in the right way, using the right techniques, to build a network, a base of people who are gonna support the township. That might, that might extend beyond party lines because perhaps a, if you're a Republican, a, a Democrat higher up is very important to your township. Befriend that person. Don't be afraid to engage with people on both sides of the the political spectrum. And those who are good at rapport are able to create a network of, of uh, assistance that an average person might not even be thinking about or, or have the skill set to accomplish. So the third is rapport. And then the fourth and final piece is execute. You know, when I gave a speech to the middle school for their graduation, I told them basically three things. I was able to whittle it down to three. It was be honest, which is the same as what I said before. Be bold, because I think that most people who are 14, 15 years old should know that uh, to be bold. And then the third, which I think they remember, is get crap done. And uh, that was, I guess, provocative for them to hear crap, but, but that is very much in keeping with what I think a great public officer should be, is, is execute. So execute on honest, thoughtful decision-making uh, be responsive in, in how you communicate with people and literally get crap done. Uh, don't just talk about it, do it. So if there's an issue, fix it. If there's not an issue, explain why it is and substantiate why that should be the case. And, and in your execution and in your honest listening and responsive communication, that to me is where the juice is. That to me is, is what makes an ideal successful public officer. And that's not just the mayor, that's, that's a committee person. So uh, 
I love many things about that answer. And I think you described a lot of the important qualifications. I'd love to go back just a minute to the role of mayor, right? Like mm -hmm. in our society, we use mayor to describe, you know, back in the day, the most popular person on Foursquare, uh, mm -hmm. a number of other things. You know, whether it's analogous to some corporate structure or something else, you know, how do you really see what is the job of the mayor in a town to do? What are they there to do? Okay, so this might be actually uh, illustrative for your uh, podcast audience, and that is it depends on the township so or, or the municipality more, more directly. So there are different forms of government in the state of New Jersey, and I suspect in other states as well. There's the township form of government, which we are, and that is you have five committee members. It can be three. It's either three or five, I believe. And the committee votes every year on who their mayor is. So in my case, uh, I won a committee position two years ago, and then my peers, including myself, we voted me in as the mayor in 2021. Uh, pardon me, 2022. And then I was reelected as the mayor in 2023. It is not a popular vote in our township. So y you didn't have a say in my becoming the mayor, for example. Um, Only that <coughs> all the voters could have a say in you joining the committee. Joining the committee, and then it was up to the the committee proper to make that decision. Now, my personal point of view is I don't particularly like that. I think that the mayor should be voted on by the people. Now, that's a form of government that would require a referendum vote from the township, and uh, I would support that because I think it's the writer uh, form of government. So, for example, in the town of Clinton, which is our sister, sister town, uh, the mayor is elected, and in fact, there is an election this year for the mayor. Uh, and the people do vote for that. And then there's also a council. So the council is not the mayor, and those, uh, those positions are also voted on by the people, but it's very distinct. They call them weak forms of government, strong forms of government, and uh, we're, I guess, considered a weak form of government. In our, so answering your question, in the township form of government, which is ours, the mayor is actually largely in name only. There are some fundamental things that I have rights to do that my fellow committee folks do not, uh, but there's, there are uh, few. So for example, the mayor is the one who makes appointments to the planning board in our township. Uh, the mayor runs the meeting, uh, but other than that, there's very little that the mayor has that the committee folks do not. So if I wanted to appoint you to the planning board, I could do that. I don't need anyone else's approval but my own. Uh, and I get to run the meeting. But, but in terms of my vote, I'm one of five votes in, in a vote for the township. Uh, I'm not given any special privileges or perks for, for being the mayor. Whereas in the case of other forms of government, the mayor breaks the tie. The mayor has, is afforded other, other privileges. But for me, I'm just a weak mayor. And I've been told that countless times by people in other towns that are stronger forms of government. That's really fascinating. Yeah. And I appreciate hearing that story. So what I would encourage people to do is if this is going beyond the ranks of, of Union Township, and I suspect that it is, people should look up what form of government their municipalities utilize and uh, how it works. Uh, I, I ran for office. I didn't fully comprehend. So I can only imagine that that other folks who barely pay much attention to this sort of thing 
I, I would say probably 5% really understand it within a town. So I would be, it would behoove people, if they're interested, to really look into what their direct municipality does. Absolutely. And is the use of the term township associated with this type of government or no? Ooh. I don't know. That's a good question. We'll, we'll put um, that in the research pile. Yeah, I'll let you do the, the work <laughs> on that one, but uh, that might be the case. Yeah, so for, oh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Is Clinton a township? So there is a Clinton township, but there's also a town of Clinton. So Clinton proper is kind of like a donut. You've got the whole of the donut, which is town of Clinton, and then you have Clinton Township, which is all around it. And so Clinton Township is much larger, and they have um, they have the same form of government, I believe, as we do. So I don't know if that's a data point that makes me conclude that all townships are township form of government, but town of Clinton, for example, is not. So you might be onto something here, man. All right. Interesting. Yeah. I'll let you know in the follow-up. Okay. So if we're speaking about then your role within the realm of this, as you mentioned, weaker form of government at the township committee, do you see yourself as then leading that committee uh, as a big part of your your job? Is it kind of building and creating that team that is one of your major critical functions? Like, I'd love to start to dive into now. Like, what are your what do your days and weeks look like, and and how do you really get things done within so, your form of government? Okay, so I think I think the best way for me to answer your question honestly is to think if I was not the mayor. If I was the if I was a committee person and under a mayor and I was David, you know, I was just the same person I am, uh, I would be a little bit uh, nervous about stepping on the mayor's toes, meaning like I might come in with a lot of energy, a lot of ideas, a lot of initiative. And I think inherently I would probably reach out to that mayor and say, hey, I'm thinking about X, Y, Z. Is that something that works for you? Is that something that how, how would you message this? And so I don't know if that's if that's just inherent deference that I would have for someone with the title. I don't require that mayor's vote. In fact, I could work around the mayor's vote and get two other colleagues of, of mine to agree on something, and we have a majority. But I would feel a natural deference to the mayor, and, and I, just, I just would. Now, I don't require that as the mayor from anybody, um, but I do know that that's how I would be if I were in just the committee person role and not the mayor. Uh, it just so turns out that I'm somebody who's coveting the concept of leadership and and good, earnest management. So it works for me to be the quote-unquote leader of a group of five and, I guess, indirectly the township. Uh, but I don't, I don't need it. And in meaning if there's someone who wants to take the helm of a particular project, I'd love to engage them and have them take it. It's... it's that's a great, more uniform distribution of workload. and But it is not easy for a lot of folks, particularly uh, in townships where you have bipartisan representation. Oftentimes, uh, the, the politics are such that they could vote in uh, across party lines, and that can make for a very stern, contentious battle uh, necessarily. And uh, all of that, is inefficiency, right? And it's not in keeping with what's in the right interest of the town frequently. Can you talk about just what what is the infrastructure around the mayor in your case? So what are those other committee members? What are they doing? What are the other key roles that are 
within the township that you mm. really need to okay. interact with on a so, regular basis. So I'll speak in generalities because I think, and I suspect that all the things I'm going to tell you are things that every township has, no matter the size. And that is, uh, okay, so there is the roads. Right. Let me open with something that I learned when I first started. A older mentor said to me, there's only three things that people care about in their town. The first is roads. They care about, well, maybe not first, maybe 1B is roads. Uh, what's the quality of their road, the roads around them, to and from ShopRite, to and from the highway. Second is taxes. They care about taxes and why did it go up? Why does it keep going up? Am I gonna be able to afford to live here in five years? And then the third is safety. People wanna make sure that they're safe for a lot of people, that their kids are safe. And so those are the three. Now in our particular township, there's a fourth, it seems to me, which is uh, what's going on with our power, power updates. And so that's kind of like a 3C requirement for, for folks. And so a lot of uh, what we do is centered around that. So for example, we have a roads crew that we employ we also have a roads liaison. And so just like in, in higher forms of government, you have different appointees for different branches of what is required. We have a rec committee liaison, uh, a member of the five-person committee that goes to rec committee meetings and helps to convey that information to and from the rec committee. Environmental commission, uh, we have buildings and grounds, so our municipal building and also the the grounds that are related to our township, like Finn Park, which is pretty sizable, and, and we have a liaison that's associated with that. We have finance people, who, of which I'm the guy, along with uh, my colleague Paige, and we get down into the weeds on, on the budget and understand what the puts and takes are, uh, and we help to draft alongside our CFO, uh, what's our budget for next year, and what does that mean vis-a-vis -vis an increase? Uh, what roads can we repair what roads can we fix this year versus next year one of the things if I could be critical a little bit is uh, I found once I stepped in that prior committee compositions did not focus on road repairs uh, which is an, an interesting political piece if you think about it because in the ideal state you'd love to repair every road that has any kind of crack right but that's taxpayer dollars in which case that would lead to a, an outrageous tax increase, which would ultimately, in theory, lead to your ouster, right? So you're the guy or you're the gal who was part of a thing that caused a 12% tax increase. You're not going to do that. So there's, there's actually personal incentive, political incentive, to keep taxes lower, to keep increases blunted, and so as a consequence of that, you might forego doing road repairs because you don't want to be the guy or the gal who's associated with this mega increase. Now, the direct consequence of that is that then these roads don't get repaired. So what I found that I was left with and we were left with, looking at it with fresh eyes, was a whole crap ton of roads that, that were in need of repair and just staring down the barrel of the gun going, oh, my God, how are we going to do all of this and in what period of time? So I actually worked with Paige Steiger. Again, he is the head of the roads uh, uh, department. And he largely, he spearheaded this with the engineer, a road prioritization list that didn't exist before, 
where I wanted people to know, here are the roads that are in our short-term radar, here are the ones in the intermediate term, and here are the ones further out, so people have a, a sense for the objective uh, interpretation and scrutiny of each and every one of our 96 roads that, that we're beholden to. And it also gives us the opportunity to put that in Excel. And so we can then forecast exactly how we're going to do each of these roads and what time frame as a means of properly distributing the costs across multiple years instead of these one-time years which are eye-popping. So in so doing, it requires a great deal of long-term planning, planning that might actually exceed the tenure of the person himself or herself. So, but I think that's the right thing to do because it's properly budgeting both short-term and long-term for the township. And so just to ask a question back about that whole scenario, the different committee members are assigned to one of those different focus areas yep. of the four, more or less. Mm -hmm. And then within that, you're working with that person and then other folks within the community on a collection of initiatives within their area of focus. So if somebody, if Rhodes is in somebody's area of focus, they're kind of the project lead in conjunction with you or they're bringing those projects to you for council and kind of approval, quote unquote, but to help shepherd those projects through yes. to completion. So let me go back. I wouldn't use directly this, those four things. That It's more just generically that those are the things people care about. And then there's a lot of branches off that. But... Uh, and I missed a couple, including fire and uh, emergency services liaison. So in the ideal world, the way it would work or should work is that each person is in charge of a particular department. Each of us has like maybe three or four uh, different departments that were the guy or the gal leading mm -hmm. it. Animal control. You know, one of us is an animal control liaison. I don't even know who it is, you know, because it doesn't really happen that often. But... Uh, the way it should work is that each person who owns it is the one who spearheads it and reports back to the committee proper. But in the realistic sense, what happens is you might know me, in which case you're going to get on the phone, you're going to call me and say, hey, why is my, you know, there's a disaster on my road, the sidewalk is broken, can you look into it? Well, this is where it gets tricky because I want to help you because you're my friend and I might actually carry the ball a little bit. But the truth is what should be done is I should go to the Rhodes liaison and say, hey, Paige, uh, you know, a, a resident of mine who I know has expressed this. Can you handle this? And then they would take it. So what I'm trying to get at is that when you have five energetic people uh, staying in your lane can be a challenge. And that's not necessarily witting mistakes. It could be unwitting and accidental mistakes. But in the ideal, each person is beholden to a certain department. And in terms of the shaping of each of those roles, so all these people get elected, right? And they're on this committee, as you mentioned. What oh, is the so accountability there? And, and how does the distribution of responsibility actually happen okay so this is actually one that i bucked when i became the mayor uh what what historically had been done was that the mayor was afforded the uh, ability to pick and choose who he or she wanted to serve in different departments i actually viewed it as like a fantasy football type deal where i said look here's how we're going to do this we're going to do a draft we're going to include everybody all five of us and pick the things that we really want to do and we'll try our best collectively to figure out who gets what 
I just thought it was the right thing to do to have a equal distribution of, uh, of thought on that. And so uh, that's how we decided it, was figuring out exactly who wanted each department and then take it and run with it. And what they, in terms of their accountability, the, oh, this is something you need to know, and this is something that the listeners need to know. So when you're in a committee, this was really hard to, to um, get used to. You cannot just call your colleagues. You can't get on a conference call and say, hey, let's call Frank and Paige and Rich and Bruce and figure out what we want to do, because that's technically a public meeting. So it's a quorum. So in the case of our township with five people, if you have three people on a call, that's a public meeting. So you can only talk to one other person at the same time. In fact, if you were getting completely religious and biblical about it, you can't even be in the same space with two other people on the committee. Now, there are general exceptions. Like, for example, if we go to a Memorial Day uh, flag uh, function, we could all be there. We just have to be careful and watchful that we don't get perceived as being in a meeting. We should not be talking about things relative to the township. We should be talking about life, et cetera, but not anything related to the township because that's a public meeting and the public deserves to know what was discussed. So because of that, it makes it very challenging for emails, right? So we can't, we can't write the group. We can't reply to the group. So it has to go through a third party like the clerk, or we could write something in blind CC and, and say, do not respond, just to remind people. Periodically, people forget. Um, that's just the nature of just, that's so foreign, the concept of you can't communicate. That is a bit of a harness to getting stuff done. I'm not gonna lie. A natural inefficiency, which I understand the reason for it, but it makes it just an incredibly inefficient process. And so because of that, a lot of what gets done done is done at the township committee meetings, which are every month. And so regrettably, it would be great if you could rope in your colleagues and say, hey, I want to get your thoughts on X, Y, Z. In order for me to do that, I'd have to call them individually, which is a pain in, pain in the ass. So, but that is the way it should be done. And then those meetings that you have mm -hmm. are, I'm assuming, always in a public space and open for the public to attend, are recorded, are cataloged? How does that? So there are certain things that most things fall under the spectrum of it should be public. So they're part of the public meeting. Uh, and therefore, it's uh, accessible. You, there are minutes that are taken. So the minutes hopefully are an accurate rendition or rendering of, of what took place. But then also there's an audio. So people can listen to the audio of, of what was discussed. And then there are certain things that are deemed more confidential, more private in nature. It could be employment related, which are not falling under, which do not fall under the purview of, of public consumption. And so those get put in executive session. And that typically occurs after the meeting or toward the end of the meeting where we discuss very personal things and, and uh, things that are not something that the public should hear. And then ultimately, those things lead to decisions that are voted on in the public forum, but the discussion around that vote is kept in private. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So essentially, in between these meetings, everyone on the committee is responsible for gathering their intel, 
moving their projects forward, getting everything ready to have input from everyone else before they make their That's right. next move. Yeah, so you might be in charge of the website, Andrew, and then you every month you come in and report, hey, this is what we've been working on, and I tapped into this particular company that's going to help us with the design, and uh, we finished our recycling center page, but we're working on our rec committee page, and, and so here's where we are. I'm, I'm hoping we're going to near completion in the next month. I'll check back in next township committee meeting and let you know where we are. But it, it, just like anything else, it's like uh, working at a pharmaceutical company or working at a company where you've got five different people working on different sub-projects. Not everyone is equal, right? So perhaps some people are saying the exact same thing that they said a month prior. Uh, so it really comes down to uh, gumption and, and energy and uh, competence. So you led right into my next question, which is what, if any, accountability is there for one's productivity between elections, I guess. So accountability, uh, n none other than getting reelected, right? I mean, if if I'm somebody that just wants to just dilly-dally and not complete anything, I'd probably create a lot of frustration among my colleagues. Maybe a colleague would turn to me and say, well, do you need help with this? Should we give this to somebody else? But ultimately, there's nothing that would force me to to do anything. I'm not forced to, but but the the natural counter to that is whether or not they get elected for a subsequent term. They don't have to do anything. There's nothing that requires them to do so. In fact, you know, if when we're looking at it cynically, I think sometimes people take office in order to just be at the table and make sure nothing bad happens. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the initiative to do good things or extraordinary things. I think that requires individuals independent of party who are just composed in such a way that, that that's really part of their DNA. And n not all politicians, not all public servants are, are composed with that type of genetic structure. In, you know, in this case, in this township style operation that you have, you mm -hmm. know, is the role of the mayor to help provide some of that vision and leadership in terms of the types of projects, how things get done? I mean, is, is that, do you play the role of, of the, the kind of leader and, and motivator of, of these folks? Is that how it works out? So, in this so I will tell you for better or for worse, this is one million percent how I have viewed this. I have viewed the role of mayor as something that someone who stands for many things, including setting the vision, setting the mission. This is not a unilateral setting of the vision and mission, but this is a, it's kind of like a figurehead. Uh, and, I, and I don't mean that flippantly. Uh, and I, I viewed this as a business project, actually. I don't know if that's a, a bad way to look at it, but um, when I won in the primary, I had about seven months before, before I was going to take office. And I had met in the course of my knocking on doors quite a few very, very smart human beings who engaged me. We stayed in touch over the course of my primary run and, and beyond. They still remain very close friends of mine. And I brought them here uh, to uh, my house to uh, essentially ask them, what's wrong with this town? Uh, not to take on a very negative posture, but, but everything needs improvement. And so I asked them, full stop, what are the things that you would like to see improved? And ultimately what they got me to 
when we put it on a whiteboard, and we literally did have a whiteboard, is we got to three things. And it was communication was number one. People felt nobody was communicating with them in the way that they thought was proper. Uh, they didn't know what the heck was going on with a certain development in town. They didn't know what was going on with new houses right across the street from the school. Nobody was communicating. And yes, it would be nice and convenient to say, well, you know, the minutes are accessible to you, so if you want to read the minutes, but many people don't know what the hell the minutes are. Uh, they might not be able to find it because it's a crappy website, let's say, or if they find it, they don't even know what the gobbledygook means. And so it can, it can be a natural barrier to recognition and awareness to just say, oh, just go look online, it's publicly available. So people felt that communication, number one, was suboptimal. Number two, community. People felt, particularly those who'd been around for quite some time, felt that there was something missing in the community. It was no longer a community. Uh, w one thing that I learned from the older generation is that there's a level of detachment that exists when your kids graduate from school where it displaces the parents who stick around. And so previously, the school was viewed as the central piece for them to engage with, with people in town. When, when that no longer exists, what you're left with is people who you see in the course of your driving to and from your house. And, and, and the established framework that you have uh, already codified, but many of them have left or moved, in which case what you're left with is an increasing detachment uh, from the people who live in the town. And so a lot of people said that we don't have a sense of community. We don't have a main street. We don't have a coffee shop that people just congregate at. We don't have a gazebo where there's a bands playing all the time. So it's not like Clinton where you've got a, a red mill and, and a river and, and things that lend itself perfectly to uh, congregation. And then the third was identity. What is union? What, what is uh, Union Township? What do we represent? Uh, we don't even have a unique name. You know, we have to frequently say, no, well, not the union that you think. This is union in Hunterdon County. I think there's something uh, uh, inherently embarrassing about that. Uh, and so I think that it also doesn't help that we have four or five different postal codes. So uh, I have a postal code of Hampton, but I don't live in Hampton. What lives in Hampton is my post office. And so there's a natural problem associated with being in, in our particular town because there's no uh, identity or no codified um, clear identity. So I took those three things, communication, community, and identity, and I thought to myself, all right, how can I fix that? Those were my marching orders. It became my, my one, two, and three. So communication, I thought, all right, let's fix it with a newsletter. So I uh, built a, a beta test of what I thought a newsletter would look like, gleaned uh, from others what should be included in that, and what I got from people was a lot of stuff. They wanted to know the news. They wanted to understand exactly what was going in town and what decisions we were making. But they also wanted a flavor for the history of the town. This, this township has a lot of history that most people don't realize. Uh, they want to know about the people in the town. And so that communication piece, which was the central vessel of the newsletter, uh, became a conglomeration of all of those things. And I wanted to represent the township in a way that my peers were telling me was important to them. And so we continue to get feedback on that thing. I'm really proud of, of what we've created and what we continue to create. And uh, it's just a really cool means of commu communication that didn't exist before.
The second was is community, and that is pretty obvious. Is is building events that that we can get people excited about uh, that have a replicable situation where you know that you can expect every spring that we're going to have a spring outing called FinFest. We didn't have that two years ago. I don't. So we started that all last year. So many events were our first annual events. We did a spring picnic called FinFest. We had hundreds of people come uh, last year. We redid it again this year. We had just as many people this year. It was just a wonderful gathering for adults, kids of all ages. We did a thing called the Hunterdon Games. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it was essentially an Olympics pitting eight towns within Hunterdon County against one another on silly and stupid events like tug of war and spelling bee and uh, kickball, et cetera. And uh, it was a great way to bring multiple municipalities together. That's something that almost never gets done. Uh, and we're doing it again in two months. So we did a tree lighting that we planted a tree. We had a resident, uh, Dan Dix, who planted a tree right across from the municipal building. And and we've had two tree lightings have been spectacular. Really great way for the township to come together. And then the final piece is identity, and that is coming. That's something that has a long gestational period. It doesn't just happen overnight. I, I was pretty methodical at, at thinking that through, too. We built caps that say union on them. Uh, that was not an accident. That was meant to, to broadcast our town name. And Caps? Caps, like hats. Okay. Yeah. And in all caps too but um and now i'm seeing people around town wearing union hats which is great because at the first tree lighting i remember asking people at the podium what town what town are we and i was shocked that people said hampton and pittstown and these were our postal codes addresses i was flummoxed by that i didn't think that was a very complicated question i thought they were going to say union and one of the metrics that i used and i thought about this all year in the year leading up to the next tree lighting is I asked the exact same question at the exact same podium. And I was very pleased to hear when I said the exact same question that the answer was union. And so to me, that was a really resonant, remarkable revelation to, to know that we were actually succeeding in building an identity for a township that, that was struggling to find one. And, and that will continue to evolve over time. But but as long as we provide those three pieces, communication, community, and identity, I think that I'm going to do right by my township. That's great. We've talked a lot about skills and experiences. Uh, you've talked about how you've managed to create some local change in the community, which I think is fabulous. Are there any things that have eluded you thus far that have been you know, big, big items on your agenda that are either difficult to get done because you're the mayor and that there are restrictions on it or because of the, you know, is there, are there any projects that have just been incredibly difficult to accomplish thus far? Uh, yeah, actually. I don't know if I'm going to address your question precisely that way, but let me tell you things that I wish we could do a better job at, which is, uh, first is I think there's very little, it's one thing to have great communication within a town or a township uh, municipality, but it's another thing to actually bridge the gap across other municipalities. Now, you might say, well, why is that important? Well, I think it might be an interesting idea to take some equipment that can cost 250 grand to purchase. Maybe we could share that equipment with the neighboring township. Maybe we can coordinate effort on that in a way that if, if Bethlehem requires a skid steer, we've got one. 
and in exchange they might have a street sweeper or something along those lines. Municipalities typically don't engage in that way because that's a that's a higher order level of thought and frankly the townships that are neighboring don't have to do anything so it requires a lot of coordination among the different municipalities to get stuff like that done. This kind of goes back to what I said before, which is establishing rapport. So I happen to be really close, thank God, with all the mayors around around us. So that's terrific on on many levels. You know, it can help us understand how they're handling different budgetary issues, uh, how they're handling fire departments. In the case of uh, we had a big fire in, in our condo area, Union Hill, last year. Well, town of Clinton, Janice Kovach was incredible with me in terms of getting them resources, the, the people who, whose homes had been destroyed, uh, finding them hotel stays. It's just a great deal of cohesion in how we're handling things. And by the way, she's a different party, political party than me, and it's totally irrelevant when it comes to a fire. And it's totally irrelevant, it should be irrelevant when it comes to getting stuff done. And so shared services to me is the first thing that I'd say, is figuring out how we as different municipalities can work together to be synergistic. Uh, the second is, uh, I, I, this, is a, this is a personal issue for me. We have a lot of possible development in our township. We, it turns out, I believe, we have the second largest footprint on Route 78 which, uh, so our corridor, if you calculate all the square footage, uh, is number two of the entire state. There's also quite a bit of parcels of land that have not been developed, and it represents both good and bad. It represents a sign of possible rateables that could be fantastic, but it could also represent industry and growth and in a way that could be extremely unattractive and unappealing to everybody, including me. And so, how we steer ourselves through development is a very tricky issue, particularly so for us because of the, the type of footprint that we have. And so I wish that we had a better control over how development occurs in our township because you can't just say no to a developer. You can't just outright say, no, I don't think so. I don't like you, so therefore we're not going to do it. You're really bound by certain rules and restrictions for saying yes and no. And I think many residents don't fully understand that, including myself. I, I didn't really get that three years ago, for example. There's a process, but, but it also would suggest to me that having good barriers in place for development is good for the town too. So for example, if we don't want 18 different warehouses, well maybe what we need to do is create some laws and ordinances that, that block that. Uh, that requires a level of proactivity that, that perhaps doesn't exist uh, inherently. So development is a real issue. We've seen it confront different towns, like for example Phillipsburg, which has quite a bit of industry now. I don't want that for this township. Uh, and I want to make sure that we do it prudently. We also can't bite our noses off to spite our faces. Everybody would love to have a haircutter and a coffee. Uh, I, I would suspect everybody would love to have a haircutter and a coffee shop and a, maybe a, a couple neat restaurants uh, that would add to the flavor of the town. But unfortunately, that's not what's, what, what's coming down the pike. These are not the developments that we're seeing. We're seeing more industry-related and... I think we need to take a more proactive role in terms of how we envision 
the overall uh, architecture and overall aesthetic of our township. And if you wanted to create new laws or ordinances to create a shift there or, or kind of protect the town or maybe s- slow the onslaught of, of new building requests or other things like that, how would you go about doing that? So you can you can modify your master plan. This is the township's uh, basically consti- basically the constitution of what you envision for the, the township. You can pass ordinances that create more restrictions around what different areas in, in the town can uh, allow in, so, such, in such a way that if something were outside of that boundary, they would require a variance in order to... So like zoning so changes. Zoning changes, correct. Uh, there's also environmental uh, groups where you can create or uh, get compliant with within the state that makes it a bit more rigorous and, and challenging for a developer to surmount. Uh, but again, the balance that you have to run is you don't want to bite your nose off to spite your face. You don't want to have what is essentially great parcels that could be used for as a means of, of blunting the tax burden to the uh, resident. But but you need to be careful about that. It's just not. It's a very complicated thing, and and I think that I think that all of us would like to make sure that we preserve the underlying aesthetic of the township, but we can't be so block everything. And in certain respects, in many respects, we're not allowed to block things. So I think we just need to be careful about that. Uh, It's a challenge, for sure. Now, there's a couple other things, too, that I would say, which is uh, the state. I think it would be great for us to have better access to the state. In, In many ways, it's a bit of a black hole. Great example, Route 78 is essentially that's the domain of the state and the Department of Transportation. And and we didn't have that connection until recently. And it was purely because, once again, we're poor. I was able to build bonds with people who were above us. And now we have a much more direct line of communication with the state uh, and the DOT on, on how to fix things. And that's important to us for exit 12 and exit 11 off Route 78. Perhaps we have better access to getting stuff done that's really bothering us. We can't touch those areas because that's not within our domain, within the municipality. With that as an example, are there any instructions handed to you whatsoever upon becoming a mayor? Or is it upon you to basically figure out how to do everything within the job? Like, is there a turnover period? Does somebody say, hey, if if you want to mess with this in the future, just FYI, you have to build a connection with the state. There's no handbook in that way, right? There isn't a formal process. There are courses you can take to learn about parliamentary procedure and protocols and what you can do and what you can't do. But ultimately, it's seat-of-the-pants learning. I mean, you're basically learning through the process. You do have counsel, so there's legal counsel that can help you and assist you with uh, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. So that's always a nice little backstop. But uh, you learn as you go. For a lot of people, they uh, start in other areas outside the committee. They might take on a job or get appointed to the planning board, or they might be on the board of ed, in which case they've earned their stripes that way, and they've figured out things that they don't have to learn so abruptly. In my case, I didn't have that, but it didn't matter, actually. Frequently in medicine, dentistry, or, or any other line of work, I feel, you, you know what you don't know. And if you know that you don't know something, 
and you know where the resources are to get that knowledge, then that's what you do. And if you are humble enough to realize that you don't know something, then you probably make good decisions by calling a lifeline. Uh, and, and so in those moments where I felt flat-footed, I just knew, well, I need some additional advice to figure out, okay, what's the right approach? How do we handle this? And usually that works. So I think if people are just honest and honest in their uh, lack of awareness or lack of understanding, then you make good decisions that way. You bring people enroll, you get people enrolled and you bring people aboard that'll help you get there. That's great. Is there anything, I want to just talk about the overall power of the role and we've, we've covered this a little bit, but in, in simple terms, is there anything mayors have the power to do that you don't think they should have the power to do? And is there anything that you think all mayors should have the power to do that perhaps in your infrastructure you so do not? The short answer is no. I, I don't think that, I don't feel like I am uh, bereft of power uh, in my particular uh, position. I think I have exactly what I should have. The only comment I would make is that that might not be the answer that other mayors would give. And also, as I mentioned before, there's different forms of government. So, so there, so different mayors have different uh, privileges. In in my case, the only thing that I have is the ability to appoint to the planning board, make appointments for different department liaison positions, and run the meeting. Uh, but in the case of others, they might have more privileges, but I don't, and I, I don't need it. You know, I just, I just want us all to, to do good jobs and, and work hard and, and always remember that we're serving the public. That's great. How much, if anything, do national politics or really the opinions of your party, quote unquote, play an actual role in the day-to-day the -day job of being the mayor? So I can tell you that in the tenure that I've had national politics, national politics have not played a single role so we've never had a a decision that has been controversial related to national politics i would make the case and I, i'm only saying this as an observer i think party preference is much more important on things like the school board where there might be questions about uh, critical race theory, might be questions about uh, how students are taught security. Um, and many of things, these things could fall, not do fall, but could fall on across party lines. And, and in that case, you might want to know what party a particular person is affiliated with because it might actually help you understand where they might fall on, on controversial issues. But I frequently have said to people, it doesn't matter what party you're in for a local committee position. Certainly not in my direct experience. It's not been an issue. Now, it turns out that we have five Republican committee people currently. And it's been, generally speaking, like that for quite some time, with perhaps a couple of notable exceptions in the past. That, I think, is largely reflective of our population, which tends to be skewed two-thirds, one-third Republican or, or red versus blue. So I think those people tend to win those elections, but, but uh, frequently we don't even have a Democratic candidate in our township. So we don't really have a partisan problem. Perhaps we might if we, if we did, but, but I don't think so. I think that there, the things that we talk about on a day-to-day -day basis have to do with 
uh, fire departments, have to do with roads, have to do with um, uh, how we handle the town, and, and that's not really a partisan issue. That's a people issue. That's great. So I want to jump into uh, some some fun and, and perhaps quick-fire questions here. One thing that we uh, didn't touch yet is, like, what has been the most surprising, in a good way, or, or unexpected part of, of being mayor? Without question, I have been struck by um, how much of a gift this has been to me. I, I frequently, I'm not just saying this, I'm frequently moved by the degree of gratitude that I've received. Uh, to be fair, I'm working my ass off. I, this is a full-time job for me, or at least I'm viewing it that way. It never stops, and I love it. I don't begrudge it. I'm not angry or disenchanted by it. I love every second of, of doing what I'm doing, and I don't think I w uh, would have guessed that this would have been me 20 years ago. I didn't have the same commitment to other people like I do today. I, was, I grew up and spent most of my life very pig-headed and stubborn and very self-oriented. First it was for me, then it was for my family, and uh, I wasn't as much of a community-oriented individual for most of my life, and for whatever reason, I guess was turning 50, I just, I just thought, maybe this is what I'd like to do, and, and it's been a total gift. Um, people know that I'm working my tail off. They get it, and so as a consequence of that, I get a lot of gratitude in return in ways that I could never pay them back. So they, they frequently tell me, thank you for what you've done, and thank you for all the changes you've helped to put forward. But the thank yous back to me are way in excess of what I've ever done. And so what I'm most surprised by is how much fun it is and how uh, rewarding it is to know that people care about what I'm trying to do for them. That's lovely. What is the best way for your constituents to learn about what's going on as it relates to your role? I think the right answer is to get to know me and get to know my colleagues. Establish personal relationships with them. If they really want to know how, to, how do they figure it out, that would be the first stop, is to know who they are, uh, ask to have uh, communication with them and, and regular correspondence with them. Engage them. I also think that's important for the people who are in those positions to know that that's their job. And and so I would say that's the first way. So, for example, you and I are colleagues and close. If there's ever an issue that's happening in your house or your road, or you can pick up the phone and call me and say, Dave, what, what's happening? And then I could try to either tell you exactly what's what or figure out what's going on and get back to you on it. And so that's the first way. Of course, there is the use of the website. You can... You, download the minutes and, and see what was discussed. But that's a very uh, impersonal and indirect way to do it. You could, of course, come to the meetings and see it for yourself. Usually we have anywhere from five people to 25 people in attendance. And if you think about a township of 6,000 people, that's a very low percentage of people who attend those meetings. So there's natural uh, hesitation for perhaps various reasons not to come to the meetings. Uh, it could be apathy, uh, but f I would encourage people to get more involved because that apathy ultimately can turn into outrage when something happens that they didn't know. Uh, 
but in generally everyone is invited to the to show oh, up yeah. to the committee meetings. The whole point of it, it's a public meeting. It's meant for the public, and we're effectively having a boardroom meeting in live public forum, and it's usually the only time that we can communicate and correspond with one another. And that's the way it should be, because then otherwise you're having backroom conversations that should not exist. That makes a lot of sense. If you could put up a billboard in town with anything you wanted on it to communicate to your constituents, uh, what would you say to them? I think if I were forced to put up a billboard, I think I would want us to hit that third piece of identity somehow. I think that that we, because we don't have a red mill and because we don't have a river and, and fancy restaurants, uh, we're forced to concoct and create our own identity, which is not intuitively accomplished. And so ultimately, I think what I want that billboard to look like, and, it, and I wouldn't want to put it up today, it would be what we are striving our, our identity to look like. And that's going to come over time. But then once that gets solidified... I want that identity to be front and center so that it can be marketed to all of us, marketed to people who don't live in our municipality, that this is who we are, this is what Union Township is about. And uh, I think that would go a long way in substantiating it too. Great. And if uh, you were giving a message out to you know folks out there across the country and in, in, in any place who wanted to become a mayor, what, uh, what advice would you give them? as they're looking into think about becoming a mayor. So it's reminding me of, of the speech I gave last year to the, the graduates of the middle school, and, and it was essentially just one thing. I just told them, if, if you want my advice, if you're interested at all in hearing from an older man who's going to impart wisdom for no reason, don't be a jerk. That was my advice. Don't be a jerk. Be a good person. Be honest. It stays consistent with your story. If you want to make an impact, it will avail itself to you. So if you want to be the mayor, if you want to be on a committee or a council, you will have the ability to make an impact in your municipality. Take advantage of it. Enjoy it. Embrace it. But don't be a jerk. You know, Do right by people. Try to be an impartial, dispassionate arbiter and make good decisions. Uh, don't be led by emotion. Led by, be led by empirical thought, by data by science, and focus rigorously on those things. And if you can do that, you're going to be a great committee person. If you are able to be impartial and not be a jerk and, and not be rooted in vested interests, whether it's your own or some sort of group, then and you're smart and competent, you're going to be a, a great public official. And enjoy the fact that you're sitting in that seat because there are probably a lot lesser folks who could have been there, but thank God you're there. That's great. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, that covers most of the questions I had. Is there anything you think we've missed in terms of the role of a, of a mayor uh, that's critical? Or I don't think so. I think you captured, you captured it well with the questions, and hopefully I gave you good answers. But um, I think this is great that you're, you're pushing for people to get educated and understand exactly what this job is or these jobs are so that either they can do it themselves or uh, they can vote properly and pick the right people and the right archetypes to take on these positions. I would just tell people not to be afraid to scrutinize people because at the end of the day, it really comes down to who the people are. 
not what party they are, but whether or not you believe that that person can can do right by you, right by your municipality, and execute in a way that that is responsive and and accurate. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you, David, so much (laughs) for your time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'd love to do it anytime. Thank you, and good luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another podcast of 60 Second Democracy. I hope that you enjoy what you're learning here. I know I'm learning a lot. Please leave comments, subscribe, and in general, let me know whether you're enjoying this, whether you have ideas for other ways to approach this, or other folks to interview to learn more about what's happening in your town or your democracy. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on all platforms where podcasts are available. Thanks for listening.